Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode four. And on today's programme, I talked to Catherine Quillen Flatter about her research into the political activation of the Wehrmacht in the closing years of the Second World War. Catherine spoke to me from her home in Germany. Kathy, okay. welcome to the podcast. Could you start about telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Nazi propaganda, the German army and the Second World War? I studied German, international relations and international history at university, focusing on the Third Reich. But I spent a very long time working in industry as a technical author and software trainer. Then about nine years ago, my personal life took a different turn and I decided I would like to do something I'd always wanted, which involved writing and history. I started out with researching World War I, and I won a regional prize for a blog. I wrote about the Great War in my hometown of Ettlingen in the Northern Black Forest. After this, I started to write articles for newspapers, and I've also done a couple of exhibitions and written chapters for book compilations in Germany. Now I work mainly as a journalist and historian, and hold talks for the Imperial War Museum, the German War Graves Commission in North Baden, and the reserves of the Bundeswehr. Well, about four years ago, I discovered a file in the General Archives of Karlsruhe, which is our city, and this file was given to me when I was actually looking for something else. It contained all the correspondence on what was called the NSFO programme, which it referred to as the political activation of the Wehrmacht. The file is basically um, containing all the correspondence between the party in Berlin and the Gauleiter or the province leaders in the various provinces in the Third Reich. And um, this particular file obviously only contains the correspondence that was sent to the Gauleiter of Baden, which is our state. That's why it's in this particular archive, because the General Archives of Karlsruhe are the archives of Baden. The file appeared to have been forgotten, and very little has been written about this topic. So I spent quite a, a while researching and trying to understand the programme based on this correspondence, which, although it only is addressed to the Gauleiter of Baden, is representative of the correspondence that was sent to all the Gauleiter, because it's the exact same letter. But of course, back then, they um, individually wrote letters that didn't Xerox them or um, individually uh, they didn't Xerox them or uh, copy um, what's it called photocopy them email yeah they also they didn't email them um, yeah so it's individually written to the Gauleiter of Baden but it is representative of every single letter that was sent out um, I found this subject absolutely fascinating and um so uh, in this talk, I will be quoting from the correspondence to a great extent. Uh, so basically all of my, or most of my findings have come out directly out of this correspondence. I have to say, I did find a book that had been written in 1961, which contained um, uh, something about this topic, 
And the guy who had written the book um, obviously had access to the remaining correspondence, which he must have got from a different archive. So I was able to put both his correspondence from Karlsruhe together with the correspondence that he had and sort of get the big picture. All translations into English are my own from this correspondence. And I think we probably need to start uh, to translate some terms. That's a very nice segue in there to, to this ne next uh, question, which is, I know you use a number of abbreviations which may not be familiar to listeners. And yeah. I wonder whether you could tell us what those are and what, they, what, what organisations they refer to. So one term I'll be using a lot is the NSDAP, which is the name of the party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which uh, I guess you refer to usually as the Nazis, the Nazi party. Um, I will also talk about the National Socialists uh, rather than the Nazis. Um, and I will also talk about OKW, which is the Supreme Forces, Army Forces uh, High Command. Um, uh, I also, I think one time mentioned OKH, which is High Command of the Army. And I think that's about just about all I'll be. When I talk about, sorry, when I talk about the party, I mean the NSDAP, so the what you would call the Nazi Party. And Gauleiters essentially are party uh, leaders within a given geographical area. That's right. They are basically like the, Germany was divided into provinces, and I think there were forty-three Gauleiter head of the province. So this these guys had enormous power, and most of them were actually um, responsible for something else as well. So Robert Wagner was the Gauleiter of Baden, uh, which was called at the time Baden-Elsass, so Baden-Alsass, because the Alsass was part of Germany at the time. He was responsible for these two massive areas, and he was based in Strasbourg. That was the capital of Baden-Alsass, which today is in France. And he was responsible for the, um, um, the Germanification of the Alsass, because the Alsass had been taken away from Germany at the end of World War I, and in 1940, the Germans had gone back to France and annexed the Alsace again. And at this time, they're trying to re-Germanify it. And the, he, he had a lot of he had a lot of work. <laughs> um, then below the Gauleiter come the Kreisleiter, and they are sort of the district leaders, uh, also in the party rather than in the Wehrmacht. Um, yeah, and they are the guys. The Kreisleiter are responsible for finding suitable officers to perform this political activation of the Wehrmacht. So they're very important people here. So let's start at the very beginning. I wonder whether we could maybe just take a step back and look at previous indoctrination attempts by the party to influence or shape the Wehrmacht. Right. So um, concrete efforts basically started in late 1943, when it was almost too late. But attempts had previously been made to introduce ideas back in 1942, and they had not been followed through. Um, first of all, you, you have to understand that the NSDAP, the National Socialist Party, and the Wehrmacht, or the military, are two entirely different entities who don't, do not necessarily see eye to eye. Uh, not all Wehrmacht officers are party members. It is compulsory, however, for all civil service officials to be members of the party, and their membership fees are automatically subtracted from their salaries. So back then, you couldn't work in local government, you know, just even as a secretary unless you were a party member. This led to a lot of problems after the war uh, in the, um, under denazification, because of course, you know, the, the Americans were just looking at, well, who had been a member of the party and why? 
but the people had no choice. If they wanted a job, they had to be. So while the Third Reich was based on the ideology of the NSDAP and those in the government and in high-ranking state positions were disciples of this Nazi ideology, the same was not true of the Wehrmacht. The aim of this concept of propaganda, which I'm discussing now, was thus to ensure that the um, military's ideology was brought into line with that of the NSDAPs. So it all started originally on around about June the 1st, 1942. Uh, General Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel of Army Forces High Command, that's OKW, issues a mem memo in which he emphasizes that it is the Führer's wish to participate, precipitate absolute accord with regard to ideology between the views of state leadership and those of the officer corps. In other words, for the Wehrmacht and the government to be on the same page. Um, this is followed by a confidential memo from Keitel on July the 15th, 1942, to have officers for what he's calling at the time, military spiritual leadership deployed at all military command authorities. Keitel is very specific about the character of these officers and their tasks. Candidates must be mentally agile, self-motivated, competent in this area, and take a firm stance in all political ideological issues. Officers will consider all proposals regarding ideological training and support, as well as be responsible for distributing and using relevant material for political training. However, the intensified concept of officers for military leadership is still not put into practice at this stage. It's only in the following year, 1943, when the situation in the latter half of the year is becoming increasingly fraught, that things start to change. The infantry is more often on the retreat than on the advance, and apart from losing its main ally, Italy, Germany has also suffered catastrophic defeat in the North African campaign. The Sixth Army has been crushed in Stalingrad and mutterings in the homeland that the war is now lost are not uncommon. The National Socialists, however, believe the war can still be won if the ultimate weapon is deployed, and that is the fanatical belief in the ideology of the Third Reich. I have to say at this point, the word fanatical is bandied about a lot and it does not have a negative meaning. So it's, it's just totally positive. Um, so I found that the National Socialists use a lot of words like this where you would think today, hmm, a bit strange, but um, wasn't, it didn't have any um, negative con connotations, as did not the word psychosis, for example, also not negative, particularly. On November 9th, the Führer speaks to the Gauleiter in Munich, and he says, uh, be completely reassured in the end, the victory will be ours. So they still think this is late 1943. And the press echoes, this will be a victory which will prove the steadfast and unbroken support of the homeland for the front. Eugen Hadamowski from the Propaganda Ministry in Berlin also reiterates these themes in his speech in November. Each person must fanatically carry the faith in victory in their heart and infuse this faith in everyone they meet. Hadamowski himself falls in March 1945, during an attack at the Eastern Front. The Red Army recaptures Kiev in December 1943. One thing I probably should have asked, and I have it as a question number two, and I didn't ask, was it seems very late in 1943 to be trying to indoctrinate the Wehrmacht when the Nazis have been in power for 10 years. What what, what had they tried before this date? Um, yeah. Maybe it's my ignorance. I should have asked this earlier, but it's a really no. interesting. Why are they doing it in 1943 and not 1933? So they, as they have been doing it before. Um, this is this is just a, 
a much more intensified effort using slightly different means. So um, it has been a long been a matter of utmost importance in the Third Reich for the entire Wehrmacht, which is the army, the Marines and the Air Force. Um, officers are instructed in military leadership in what is called Ordensburgen. They are elite education academies. And the, the main locations are at places called Vogelsang, Kresensee and Sonthofen. And further training courses in NS ideology are held at training academies. The Ordensborgen academies are specifically developed for the elite ranks of the NS military. Candidates are Junkers between the ages of 25 and 30, and they must be members either of the party, the Hitler Youth, the SA or the SS. Apart from being physically healthy and of pure blood, they usually have completed elementary training in one of the so-called Adolf Hitler schools, followed by a period in the army. The aim of the academies is to produce officers who are trained in NS ideology and technical subjects. So this concept thus provides a basic framework for this subsequent ideological training of the Wehrmacht. Some of these officers are actually already deployed among the troops, but the NSDAP now proposes, this is the difference, a mass campaign to, to turn each and every single soldier um, into a fanatical, this is the word they use, national socialist. So what type of indoctrination, what type of soldier does this indoctrination seek to achieve from 1943? Um, ultimately, those advocating the programme um, believe that the concept of faith uh, is the decisive weapon and that a soldier infused with this fate will basically fight in a different manner. In the final analysis, Germany cannot lose if it cultivates the concept, this concept of faith and in the ideology of the Third Reich. On February 1st, 1943, so um, this is still before, before it starts to happen, uh, General Ferdinand Schoerner, commanding general of the 19th Army, Army Corps, issues a special command in which he ascertains faith is the strongest life force. Military training cannot be separated from ideological training. Today's soldiers triumphs, triumphs with his weapon, both his weapon and his ideology. He carries the strong belief in the inherent righteousness of his cause and is willing to stand up and fight for this belief without consideration for himself. So often you have, it's not just all coming from the party and the, and the, um, the ideology, the um, propaganda. It's also a lot of it is coming from the military, very high up guys who have a lot of them been through World War One and think, you know, believe that you have to infuse your, your soldiers with this, this faith and this belief in order for them to be um, able to uh, win. Um, if I may refer to the talk yesterday, uh, the, um, the four weeks before the end of the war in the First World War, uh, we talked about a, a leader who had this kind of um, attitude and was always infusing his men with, uh, with uh, bravery. Um, yeah, and they actually, it actually worked. So you, I think you have a lot of sort of ex-First uh, World War, First World War one guys um, advocating and recommending this kind of ideological training at this point. Uh, Schoener, as a general, general Ferdinand Schoener, emphasizes that it is the task of an officer, it is the task of an officer to ensure that his men are immune to enemy propaganda. Soldiers cannot be affected by the moods of the tides of battle. They must clearly identify with the concept of national socialism and fight for it with passionate conviction. On top of that, this war is a completely different war from the campaign against France or the Balkans, Schoener says. 
the troops must understand the significance of the occupied territories for the future of Germany and what it means to triumph over such a fanatically led enemy as Russia. In modern warfare, the victor has better weapons, but these weapons must be operated by soldiers whose bravery and will to survive cannot be surpassed by the enemy. Underlining the task of the personal role model of the officer for his men, Schoener argues, the officer, as the leader of his men in battle, is also responsible for training in National Socialism. The officer, the officers responsible for ideological education must be heavily involved in safeguarding the inner structure of the troops. Their inconspicuous, silent work in groups is of prime importance. However, Schoener stresses, under no circumstances are our soldiers to be spied on. On the other hand, if there is something wrong, it needs to be reported. To what extent the NSFO officers ultimately act as spies is probably dependent on the degree to which they are accepted in their respective units. On May the 14th, 1943, a letter is issued from the Office of the Commander-in-Chief of the Reserve Army, General Oberst Friedrich Fromm, stating that the candidates should be officers with proven experience at the front, active national socialist with a spirited personality and an individual capable of transferring his thoughts to others. His rank is incidental. In essence, he supports the commanding general in military leadership, assisting in training and attending training courses every four to six weeks, as well as working in the military hospitals, in particular, holding lectures of 20 to 30 minutes in length to wounded and sick men. I'd just like to do an aside there. If I was a wounded or sick man lying in the hospital bed, the last thing I would want Somebody standing there holding a talk for 20 or 30 minutes in ideology. Anyway, despite these detailed specifications, still no concrete action to install new political officers is undertaken at this stage. How did the process for finding suitable officers work? And, and to what extent did the party exercise power over the army in the search for suitable candidates? Well, finally, through uh, General Scherner's uh, conclusion that the concept of faith is a decisive weapon, Hitler becomes aware of the importance of this programme. And upon his instructions, the party chancellery finally officially requests the Gauleiter in a letter of September the 1st, 1943, with the subject political activation of the Wehrmacht, to find officers who possess the requirements for accepting politically specific tasks within the Wehrmacht. It is up to the Kreisleiter, the district, um, district leaders, to find suitable candidates or to report that none can be found. This is quite important with the reporting that none can be found because it's not accepted if they just don't send any, any, any names. They actually have to send a letter saying that they can't find any. And, uh, you know, actually they should really be saying why not. It is Hermann Passer, that's Bormann's, Martin Bormann's chief officer in Berlin, who issues this letter to the Gauleiter. The most important requirement for the political activation of the Wehrmacht is that the political tasks are performed by ideologically trained and politically activated officers, writes Passer. I have therefore been requested to provide the party's assistance in proposing such officers to OKW who would be suitable to work in the politically ideological field. I ask you to treat this request as strictly confidential. So by saying this, he has thus diplomatically removed the onus from OKW, from the Supreme Command of the Army, um, 
to find suitable officers while at the same time retaining control over the proposed programme because all the names must be submitted to him. In this initial correspondence, Passa states that only officers holding a rank from captain to colonel will be considered. In a further letter to the Gauleiter on November the 30th, 1943, Passa states that the Führer has decided that the position hitherto filled by officers deployed for military leadership, so those are the guys who've been educated at these um, Ordensburgen that I mentioned before. Uh, so, these, I got, so this new position is going to be known as the Officer for National Socialist Leadership. That's my translation. It's called NS Führungsoffizier uh, and abbreviated to NSFO. This is the first mention of this new term. The NSFO's tasks are to be considerably more extensive than the previous military leaders, so the guys who've been doing it since 1933. Their rank is now no longer critical. They can hold the rank of first or second lieutenant passerites. The NSFO is accountable to the unit commander who remains responsible for NS leadership in the Wehrmacht. Proposals for this position must be submitted to him, to Passer, by January the 15th, 1944, at the latest. You can see it's really complicated, the whole, you know, the whole thing, the whole, the whole process, terribly complicated. Bormann himself issues a letter, Martin Bormann, he's the, he's the boss, uh, himself issues a letter to the Gauleiter on December the 21st, 1943, stating that the party chancellery in Berlin will be responsible for drafting the men. So now it's, it's really obvious, you know, who's in charge of this project. The party chancellery is the central governing body of the NSDAP under the leadership of Martin Bormann, and thus the NSDAP will apparently be responsible now for the pre-selection of candidates, not the military. In principle, the ideal candidate was born in 1901 or later and should have experience not just at the front, but at the Eastern Front. That is very important. Um, uh, we saw yesterday in the talk when I mentioned the World War I, uh, at the end of World War I in the German trench trenches, I mentioned that um, Hitler had fought in a unit which only had Western Front experience. So that's just an interesting point, I think. He's demanding things from uh, people that uh, he didn't have himself. So just an aside there. It is very clear in the meantime that the task of finding suitable officers lies within the scope of work of the NSDAP and not of the military. So how did the Gauleiters, the party bosses and the district bosses, the Kreisleiter, excuse my German pronunciation, did they respond positively to this urgent request to supply a list of officers? And if not, why not? Yes, um, this is a really interesting point, uh, which I have gone further, investigated even further uh, in, other, in another, in another uh, scenario. The Gauleiter start to receive responses from the Kreisleiter and lists of men are proposed together with short biographies of their past career and current position. In some cases, those holding ranks beneath that of a captain are offered. In general, most of the Kreisleiter and Gauleiter comply with the requests of the NSDAP to submit lists of suitable men. However, on September the 13th, 1943, I found a letter from Kreisleiter Wilhelm Seiler from Heidelberg. He's the Kreisleiter of Heidelberg. And he says he's unable to provide any candidates at all. He reports, all, all officers are suffering from the current psychosis prevalent in the Wehrmacht and in officers' circles, that the homeland is of pessimistic mood and that the party structure has broken down. Uh, this is, I just find this absolutely incredible that he 
he wrote this and nothing happened to him. He continues, officially, comradely relationships exist between the party and the Wehrmacht. However, these relationships have not yet extended beyond official boundaries. The officers perform their service, have a healthy military outlook, but do not have any idea of political requirements. So basically saying, you know, we, you know, in, in the Wehrmacht, the guys are just, they just don't have the same ideology as you do. You know, the, the uh, party is ruling Germany and everything. Everybody thinks it's, you know, it's this huge Nazi Germany, but not even the Wehrmacht on the whole is, um, has this, has this uh, ideological outlook. Um, Kreisleiter Kurt Weinbrecht from Karlsruhe, that's our, our city, uh, he also reports, no officers are known to me who would be sufficiently reliable and suitable from a political and ideological point of view to be proposed for such a position. It is remarkable that from the larger cities of Karlsruhe and Heidelberg, no officers can be found as suitable candidates. And yet from the smaller towns of Konstanz or Sinsheim, for example, entire lists of appropriate officers are submitted. I thought it seems likely, maybe, that the Kreisleiter who are unable to propose any candidates belong to those who consider military spiritual leadership to be superfluous. Um, again, I'm only basing this on what the information that we have from the state of Baden, because that's the correspondent I, correspondence I had. But you could see it might be indicative or representative of other provinces in Germany. So one, one uh, aside is where would the Kreisleiter find these officers in your given district? Were they, would they be in hospitals? Would they be personal circles? Would they be at a depot? Were they just resident in that, that area? Yeah, I think they're, they're coming from the units of that area. Um, so the, the Christleiter would have access to the information. They know exactly how long have they been in the army? Have they had any medals? How, you know, um, their date of birth, sort of personal data and, and basically their military history. Um, and they, I guess they would sort of go around talking to the individual military officers in the units and ask, they have to go to the next next level down, obviously. Um, they won't know the, the guys personally and the recommendations will be sort of passed on and on, as it were. I'm guessing that's what's happening, but that's not recorded. So you, you touch on some of the challenges that the Nazi party face. Were there any other problems that they encountered in implementing this programme? Well, the point is that none of them get on with each other. So you've got personal and professional jealousies existing between the officers in the Army Forces High Command and in the upper command of the Army, so between OKW and OKH, as well as between members of the military and the party chancellery. So all of these guys are, are fighting, a lot of infighting going on. This leads to tension, which causes divergence of opinions in the preliminary stages of the programme, ultimately contributes to a lack of concord during its actual implementation. Apart from all this infighting and tensions between party chancellery and members of the military hierarchy, as well as between OKH and OKW, Hitler himself has, <laughs> doesn't get on with anyone else. <laughs> he has an immense trust of the officer corps. The Wehrmacht's attitudes are fundamentally different from those of the National Socialists, so we really have to remember they are two entirely different entities. You know, trying, the, the National Socialists are trying to impose their ideology on everybody else. For Hitler, the setback at Moscow in 1941 was the consequence of a discord between the military and National Socialism. That's the problem for him. To Franz Halder, 
chief of OKH, so chief of, chief of the army, until 1942, Hitler had said, anyone can manage a few operations. The task of the chief of OKH is to infuse the army with national socialist spirit. I know of no army general who can meet this task as I require. As Bormann, so Martin Bormann from the party chancellery in Berlin, informs the Gauleiter on January 22nd, 1944, he says the tasks of the NSFOs are decisive for the outcome of the war, so it has now become war critical. Officers must be found who are not only the best and most experienced speakers, but also unconditional national socialists with excellent service at the front and experience in political and ideological leadership and education. The main thing is that they are suitable political activists. They must be capable of speaking with the officers in their units with regard to political issues, activating them and training them in ideology, both in written and verbal form. Okay, then, then it gets even more difficult because in typical National Socialist fashion, they are all now checking each other, right? So you haven't just got these new departments, but you've got departments within departments who are checking um, you know, the, the department itself. So uh, Hitler is now appointing new guys within these new departments. Um, so as chief of the NS leadership department in OKW, which is now called NSF OKW, Hitler appoints General Hermann Reinecke, who states in January 1944 that, this is amazing, that the war can be won with 51% certainty through the ideological guidance and orientation of all officers. Due to the existing tension and rivalry between NSDAP and Wehrmacht, Bormann creates a parallel department within the party chancellery, which checks whether the NSFOs are irreproachable in line with national socialist ideals. Wilhelm Ruder is appointed head of this department and declares in a speech at a conference in April 1944 in Munich, love for the Reich, national socialism and the Führer, as well as hatred of the enemy must be awakened. Schoener himself is chief of the NSF OKH, the army. Ruder realizes that this new directive is not going to meet with acceptance everywhere and will probably lead to resistance. Success can only be achieved if the deployed NSFOs are both military and political personalities, Ruder argues, who approach this task with love, inner enthusiasm and zest. He is fully aware of the opposition. He says, it is known that a large number of men, particularly older officers, consider a political education of the military to be superfluous, and they have prevented all attempts at systematic national socialist training to date. Training material is available in all divisions, and if nothing has been done in a large number of these divisions, it is because their commanders did not wish to. The danger is, continues Ruda, that such commanders who have to date rejected NS ideological training will either not propose any officers at all, or will only propose a mild officer in tune with their own attitudes, but not appropriate for the requirements. He suggests that NSF OKW, in conjunction with the party chancellery, must perform intensive checks on the proposed officer. Everybody has a job. There's so much work going in the Third Reich because you've got everybody checking everybody else all the time. The party must insist on appointing as NSFOs only men who have held a position of leadership in the past, argues Ruder. Active officers must be chosen so that the troops are reassured they are being taught by one of their own. The first structures in, when, in which NSFOs should be deployed are military colleges, military hospitals, 
and POW camps. So what was the nature of these efforts for ideological education and what form did they take? Right, so um, in Reinecker, now he's the chief of the NSFO departments in OKW, yeah, in his memo of February the 9th, 1944, announcing the newly formed NSF OKW group, he compiles, he compiles the guidelines for NSFO leadership in the Wehrmacht. The NSFO is responsible for the political activation of the troops and must be kept permanently informed of the military situation. He must impart the National Socialist body of thought. He must visit the troops regularly together with the commander. He must also procure, process and distribute the material for ideological instruction. So there's going to be some lectures they are coming up. In addition to his lectures, he should be able to explain current issues on party and state leadership and advise on commands with political content. In addition, the staff responsible for human resources and propaganda must work closely with the NSFO and provide him with political ideological material for his practical training. They are also obliged to make use of his experience and the results of his work in their own specialised areas. The NSFO should accompany the commander to visit active troops, service clubs, and the wounded in military hospitals as often as possible. Finally, the NSFO is responsible for organizing the troops' leisure time, continuous assessment of the status of NS leadership on behalf of the commander, setting up and continuously improving a library for NS leadership, and organizing national commemoration days. Um, the list of proposed topics on which the NSFO is to impart knowledge and advice, hold lectures or informal discussions is fascinating and impressive even today. So the first is called the purpose of this war, which I think is a, a topic, that, a lecture I would like to attend as well, uh, subtitled a historical assessment of the European balance of power and the conclusions for Germany. Um, then we have the concept of the Reich the ideological task of the NSDAP and Germany's leadership role in Europe from a historical perspective, equally as inviting as Party and Wehrmacht, subtitled Ideology and Weapons in the Battle for the Reich. Then we have uh, some more topics which perhaps offer enlightenment in the area of international relations, the geopolitical situation, Europe's war of fate in the East, and the Anglo-American battle against Europe subtitled An Analysis of Americanism. A further three topics deal with the domestic situation, the German welfare state, wartime economic policy, and the inner situation of the Reich, which includes subtopics on science and education, Germany's biological situation, the work effort and issues regarding foreigners, the NS cultural purpose, and the commitment of the party in wartime. The uh, Führer's journey from November 1918 to the present day surely covers the chaotic history of the Weimar Republic and the political struggle of the NSDAP before the seizure of power, while the Jew as world parasite provides the only direct reference to the NSDAP's anti-Semitic policy. The list is rounded off by the extraordinary victory through faith and the imposing battle as a law of life a homage to the military origins of the NSDAP. And uh, yeah, uh, I did not find, unfortunately, the, any of these lectures or any further information on them, just the lists of topics. So how did the Wehrmacht receive such educational efforts? Well, 
the uh, some commanders felt monitored by their NSFO, and I think they were rightly feeling that rightly, while some war pastors perceived the NSFO as a competitor. Ultimately, the NSFOs held fewer lectures and tended to look after the men in the trenches and the lazarettes in order to gain their confidence. Um, to make their work easier, the NSFOs were supplied with freebies for the soldiers, so free gifts like razor blades or films or card games. In reality, the NSFOs were monitoring the entire unit and their opinion was always asked when it came to promotion. Martin Bormann deploys entire troops of NSFOs directly at the most threatened sections of the front. Between NSFO OKW and NSF, sorry, NSF OKW and NSF OKH, however, there is disunity. What's new? While Reinecker emphasizes that the NSFOs may not have any direct contact with the troops, Schoener, who's heading up the other group, encourages the officer officers to exercise their influence on each individual soldier. After two months, Schoener is replaced by Georg Ritter von Hengel, who demands in 1944 in a speech in the Ordensburg, the elite academy at Sonthofen, that officers must educate their soldiers to the irrepressible will to destroy and to hatred. Engels sees the NSFO programme as an unfortunate necessity because the officers have failed in their task. And how effective were these efforts to convert Wehrmacht soldiers into ideological warriors? Well, according to statistics, uh, 1,074 NSFOs are employed full-time on December 20th, 1944. But around 45,000 officers are employed part-time in the army, a further 5,452 in the Luftwaffe, and around 900 in the Navy. I think it was not very successful in the Navy at all. But right from the beginning, the NSF programme is set up in an environment characterised by internal power struggles, at least in the higher ranks. At the lower levels, it is met with resistance. The nearer you get to the front, the less you hear Heil Hitler, it is said. The resulting discord and confusion do not provide the best basis for creating fanatical national socialists from German soldiers. At the end, it is not faith that is victorious, but superiority in weapons and troops. And one thing that I've just been wondering is that the, the, the uh, Wehrmacht and the, and the Germans obviously executed a lot of commissars that they found in the Red Army. And how much is this sort of mm -hmm. idea of an NSFO based on the, on the Red Army equivalent yeah. that they derided and thought was an ideological uh, danger to, to the right? Uh, I am... Um... I'm asked that a lot about these politofficier, we call them. I don't actually know what the name is in Russian or even in English, but <laughs> but um, what is the difference, I'm asked, between, well, you know, I'm no expert on the Russian politofficier, but I do know that the main difference between the two was that the um, it was very, very important for the National Socialists to have soldiers, uh, political officers, who had front experience and best of all, Eastern Front experience. And that was something that the polit officers absolutely didn't need to have. But with them, it was all about the ideology. They didn't ever have to have, you know, been, um, as far as I know, at the front. Um, so that was one major difference. Um, I must say, I don't know um, why they had them executed, the polit officer. Um, I can only think that, you know, this was... Uh, uh, so it's a very um, intense program 
And, you know, just, just reading through it, you can see that um, there's an enormous amount of ideology. You really have to believe. You have to have the faith. And if you are being infused by somebody who has that faith, um, it, you will be influenced by that propaganda. So I think, you know, whether it was coming from the, the Red Army or from the, the National Socialist Army from the Wehrmacht, um, you could be influenced one way or another very easily. So I think it's very important to um, suppress any kind of propaganda that can be, you know, dangerous. One thing connected to that was, does the programme that they implement increase in intensity after the assassination attempt on Hitler in July 1944? I don't know. It's, it's actually not even started much longer before that because they're only starting really to get names at the end of January 1944. The whole thing starts terribly late. I don't know exactly when the first people are taking off. I have to say as well that there is no record of how well it worked. That simply is not on record. There's record of, you know, that they issued these free gifts and that they were they were um, uh, not particularly well looked on by the pastors and 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 some people thought that they were spying on them, which of course they were. But how successful they actually were, and uh, you know whether it intensified later or even got less, um, I, I don't know. There is no record of this. So I would say, where can people learn more about your work? I mostly write in German. So unless you're a German speaker, you won't be able to read everything I research. I usually write one history article a week for our city of Karlsruhe, an online newspaper, and all the articles can be called up online. I've also written several longer articles for the newspaper of Rheinland-Pfalz called Die Rheinland-Pfalz, mainly about World War I and World War II themes. In English, I've written several articles for the Imperial War Museum's blog, and of course, there is my First World War website, which is all in English. Kathy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom.